Hello and welcome to the first of our inspiring leadership podcasts. The purpose of these podcasts is quite simply to learn from the best, the very best. We want over the course of the next few weeks to understand what makes a great business leader. How do they focus? How do they get people to follow their vision? How do they motivate? How do they deal with failure? And even how they celebrate? Albert Schweitzer said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. We will learn from experiences, good and bad. And that will always be our best teacher. There's always something to learn. Why invent pastry when we can use our grandmother's recipes? I'm Daryl Cook, the co-founder of law firm Gunnar Cook and the author of To Innovate or Not to Innovate. And today I'll be joined by Professor Damien Hughes, a best-selling author, a motivational speaker and trusted advisor on psychology to business leaders and sports stars alike. Leadership begins at home. It begins with an individual. Damien has written the five steps to a winning mindset and over many years now has worked and studied many of our best sportsmen and women and business leaders and coaches. And so he's in a unique position to guide us in the foundations of success and just what it takes. Welcome, Damien. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Actually, what you, um, I don't know if you know this, Damien, but we went to the same school. Um, right. Hume Grammar School in Oldham. I, I think uh, I was a few years ahead of you, so I suspect if you knew I existed, um, you'd have probably had to look up to me, but I don't think you knew I existed <laughs> at the time. I think your name was on the honours board. Not <laughs> I doubt it. Um, you've been known to the firm for quite a number of years now, and I think you were our first speaker at our very first symposium. Every year we have this uh, tremendous symposium at Oxford, uh, and we invited you along to talk to... Uh, our partners, we're, you know, our model is very much about trusted advisors and, and lawyers um, working very closely with their clients. So we wanted to get across the message of presence and authority uh, and respect, etc. And we asked you to come and, uh, and speak at that symposium. What you don't know is we also spoke to a ver an American lady who was advising a number of cabinet ministers at the time. And um, uh, we asked her if she'd do the same talk. But then when we met with you, we were blown away by your kind of your personality, your presence, your enthusiasm. Uh, and we came out of that meeting with Laura, my marketing director, and I said, oh, I'd love to have uh, Damien, be fantastic. I said, but um, at the time we were kind of developing pretty much in London and across the UK, and I said, do you not think he sounds a bit northern? And, and she said, she went quiet, and she said, have you heard yourself? <laughs> so anyway, you did that, get that gig. Anyway, let, why don't we move on, actually? Because I'm really, I think you have my... my um, <clears throat> Probably if I didn't do what I'm doing, I'd love to do what you're doing, Damien. I think you have one of my uh, favourite jobs. Um, and we want to get out of you today some of those, some of those kind of recipes that you've learnt from people that, would, that, that, sure. that can perhaps help us. So just to start with, what, what to you, what is an inspiring leader? What does that sort of person look like to you? That's a really good question, Daryl. I think there's a really nice model that I sometimes talk about with leaders that comes from uh, the work of Warren Buffett when he was speaking um, 
particularly about the Berkshire Hathaway group that has led to such success over so long. And he says a leader should be viewed through three particular lenses. Uh, and I think these three lenses contain the keys for what you describe as an inspirational leader. I think the first lens is energy. So a leader has to bring a positive energy to a room, to a group, to anybody that he interacts with. The second lens is they've got to bring an intelligence and so they can speak with credibility about the topic that, um, that they're presenting on or that they're renowned for. But the third criteria that Buffett demands is integrity. You've got to be transparent about what you stand for and then you've got to role model those behaviours in pretty much every situation. Now, Buffett's advice is if you're a leader that's got high energy and high intelligence but you don't have much in the way of integrity, you should have no part to play in any high-performing team or business because the essence is people don't follow a hypocrite. We're, we're wired to follow people that role model what they're asking everybody else to do. So there's a very powerful primitive instinct in us that we follow people that demonstrate very clearly and demonstrably integrity. Wow, I love that. That's, that's, um, that's a great answer. Um, to be that successful sportsman or woman or yep. to build a great business, you clearly need to take personal responsibility. And I, and I suspect this is one of the key questions, I think, is because I guess there are different levels of personal responsibility, and it can mean different things to, to different people. Tim Grover, the uh, Michael Jordan's coach, refers pe to people who really own it, whether it be managing a family or running a business or driving a bus, as cleaners. He calls them cleaners, and he said they decide how to get the job done, and they do whatever is necessary to make it happen. What do you think that me it means, personal responsibility? Again, I think it's a really powerful question that uh, lies at the heart of so much that we've seen in terms of high performance. It, is, it starts with this really clear accountability. So I've been hosting a podcast recently where we've been interviewing high performers and the phrase that keeps coming up from a number of them is that it doesn't matter whose fault it is, it's your responsibility to respond to that. So, you know, it's not your fault you might have been born in poor circumstances. It's not your fault that you face catastrophic circumstances, but it's your responsibility to deal with it. We interviewed um, a young boy uh, recently called Billy Munger, who uh, um, he had aspirations to be a Formula One driver, and on his way up, I think he was 17, he was in a Formula Four race at uh, Donington, where he was in a catastrophic um, car crash, where five days after the car crash itself, he woke up and found he'd had both of his legs amputated. Um, and he was the one that coined that phrase for us. He said, um, I immediately woke up, I looked at footage of the car accident and I realised that it wasn't my fault. The, in, uh, the, the, the incident was down to a technical failure of a driver in front of him. He said, but it was my responsibility to deal with that. So he refused, for example, to allow us or to allow anyone to refer to him as disabled. He said, I'm just as able as anyone else. There's certain things I can't do, but I refuse to allow that to, to shape my identity. And within six months of this accident, he was back driving a Formula 4 car again, and it's still his aspiration to become a Formula 1 driver. So that's the phrase that I often talk about. That rather, So it's where you apportion uh, your focus. Is it, it how much of it is on whose fault it is versus the question of, I'm responsible for making this better in whatever way that I can. And it's just a theme that runs through. I think it's a really powerful idea of our locus of control is a phrase that we talk about in psychology, 
when we put the locus of control outside of ourselves and we look at events and circumstances, it disempowers us. Whereas when we take responsibility, the locus of control says, I still am an agent of my own fortune here. And I, and I guess it's the detail though, isn't it? Because, it, you know, as you, I think everybody would recognise that you need to take personal responsibility, but it's the level that you take it to, isn't it? It's, you know, kind of knowing isn't enough. You just have to take action. And you look at the pandemic now and, you know, lots of people look around and look to the government or their employees to, their employers to tell them what to do. Yep. But actually you have to take responsibility for your own health. 100%. And I think when you boil down responsibility, there's only three areas that we have absolute accountability on. One of it is our thought processes. We control our thoughts, how we choose to believe, like our beliefs, how we choose to interpret the world and the world around us. We have complete control over the language we use, so the way we talk about it. And then the third thing is we have control over our behaviours, how we show up, how we conduct ourselves. So language is always to me, the window into the thought process and how somebody will behave. And there's some really interesting research from a guy called Dr. Martin Seligman, who's the head of psychology at Penn State University. And he talks about this idea of um, optimism. And I think this is a far more powerful concept than people sort of talk about the power of positive thinking. And I think it's easy to lampoon and to laugh at this idea that, that you're constantly going around with a big smile on your face. I think optimism is a more realistic pragmatic view that says we all accept that you know what sometimes bad things happen a pandemic causes all kinds of disruption but optimism is our way through it and optimism can be determined by avoiding what Seligman describes as the three p's so the first p is we personalize everything oh, why is this happening to me this isn't fair they don't like me the second p is permanent this is always the case this is a it's never going to change and then the third p is uh, we make it pervasive. Everybody feels the same way. We're all fed up with it. And he says, if you can counter those three Ps, that is at the heart of controlling your thought process to become an optimistic mindset, which drives the language you use, the thought processes, and the way you show up and behave. That's interesting. And, 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 I, and it's an age-old, as you say, it's an age-old philosophy, isn't it? I think I remember reading that the, the early Stoics used to say, you first say to yourself, what you would be, and then you do what you have to do. Uh, and it's that concept of doing what you have to do, isn't it, really? And I, and I think life, as life has gone a bit easier, though, people find it easier uh, not to do that. But the real winners, the real successes, really take, take personal responsibility and personal control over everything. Yeah, I'll give you a really um, powerful anecdote for me that uh, re relating to these interviews that I've done recently, where uh, we'd arrange to meet Sir Chris Hoy, um, in the northern quarter of Manchester. Now, for anyone that doesn't know it, it's often like a rabbit warren of different sort of back alleys and streets and things like that. But we'd had a studio that was located there and it was a really miserable day in December. It was raining, it was cold, and it wasn't the easiest place to find. Uh, but we'd arranged to meet at 10 o'clock and at 10 to 10, there's a knock on the door, we open it. So Chris Hoy's there. This is Britain's most decorated Olympian. So. We're welcoming in and we're just getting him a cup of tea and chatting. And I said to him, thanks for being here on time, Chris. And he was affronted by me saying that. And I, <laughs> so he said, well, what do you mean? Of course I'll be here on time. We arranged it, it was 10 o'clock, I'm here at 10 to 10. So I thought this was a thread worth pulling in the conversation. So I said, would you explain more about that? And the essence of his point was he said, we've arranged to meet at 10 o'clock, so I, I'm doing what I say. He said, because if I show up late, that would imply that somewhere in my unconscious, I think my time is more important than yours mm. by definition. 
I think I'm better than you or more important. And he said, and it's just an abhorrent thought. That's not the way that I view the world. Now, in that one anecdote, what can you extrapolate from that about Chris Hoy? Then you go, well, he's reliable. He does what he says. <laughs> he's committed that he will be there on time. And you can pretty much put your um, money on the fact that he will deliver what he says he will do. Now, you take those behaviours, because that identity, that way he views himself, manifests itself in the way that he chooses to behave, and you go, that's why he was successful in three Olympic cycles, yeah, yeah. because he, he didn't get carried away with his own importance. Yeah. He showed up every day when he said he would do, and then he delivered on what he was committed to. Yeah. There's the essence and, of and, it. And to me, that's integrity. Doing what you say you will do is integrity. 100%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you were working with Chris Hoy, you know what you're going to get. There's a transparency to what he's told you there. And then, like you say, the consistency of just delivering against what, what, what he's committed to. Okay, great. Good. Well, let's, let's move on. Let me ask you another question, because I think this is um, particularly relevant to sports people, but I wonder if we shouldn't um, look at it beyond that as well. And that we'll often, sportsmen and women will often talk about visualisation, about yep. visualising success. And they'll use that as a tool in their armor. What, what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, visualization is a skill of using your brain and, it, and, and, and its capacity to imagine the future but, and focusing it on a particular moment. So it might be, for example, that if you're going to deliver under pressure, it might be a, a certain, like a penalty sk- uh, kick or something like that in football or a, um, a, or a, a drop kick. In, um, in rugby, you would visualise from starting with the end in mind, so the ball going through the post or going between, uh, or going past the goalkeeper and successfully doing it, and then you extrapolate all the way back to what's your technique like to when you strike the ball and the way that you walk up from it. So it's visualising, so it's controlling your thoughts rather than visualising what you don't want, you visualise what you do. So the user technique in, when they train Formula One drivers, it's very much around visualisation where very early on in their career, they'll have drivers racing towards a wall. And what they train them to do is your instinct is you're staring at the wall as you're driving at 200 miles an hour from it. The last thing you want to do is turn your neck back to on the track because all your instincts are staring at what you're going to hit rather than where you need to be. And what Formula One drivers learn the skill of is look at where you want to go rather than where you don't want to go, which is what visualisation really is. Look at what you do want rather than what you don't. So it's an incredibly powerful skill, and I think it's best harnessed for particular moments. So if I was listening to this in a corporate setting, I'd be thinking it might be a pitch for a new piece of business. It might be the meeting when you meet a new client for the first time. It might be um, a certain negotiation. You can harness the power of visualisation and imagine how you want to show up. Rather than try and control other outcomes, it's more about how you show up and how you execute what you can. But I often think there's a... There's a skill that works in tandem with visualisation that is often neglected, and it's a concept that uh, is referred to as a pre-mortem. Now, this is a phrase um, coined by a psychologist in America called Gary Klein, who says that as well as visualising what you do want in the outcome, before you set off to do that, a pre-mortem says you make the time to work out what could go wrong. So what are the things that could, ki- so that could kill it, hence the name of pre-mortem? and then work out how would you handle it if that, if that difficult moment arise. And what they found is that when people conduct a pre-mortem 
in alliance with the, the positive visualization, people's resilience to difficult moments improves by, it's estimated around 32 to 33%. So the two things work in tandem, so rather than just visualizing success and then assuming that will happen, making the time to work out what could go wrong means that you're more likely to make the positive outcome occur anyway. And actually, I've been, it's interesting as well because that is visualising the future and the success in the future. And I've been reading, a, interesting what your view is on this, I've been reading a book by a guy called Dave Goggins. I don't you know, he's described as the, the oh, fittest yeah, the man in, Amer in America. Same. He's yeah. kind of an ultramarathoner. And he talks a lot in the book about when his body would break down, how his mind would take over. You know? yeah. so, and one of the things that he would talk about, he would call on what he called a cookie jar. So he would remember things in his past that would get him through. And it could be very simple things. You know, it could be getting a biscuit of his mother for doing something well. Or it could be some major things. Uh, and he would draw on those things just to, to get rid of the pain as he was, you know, had another 100 miles to run or whatever. Wow. Well, I mean, that's a very common technique. That the phrase I use, I like the cookie jar uh, uh, analogy. The phrase I use in something like that is I call it success leaves clues. So I often encourage, so, what, so, so when I work with teams, I think the worst thing you can do is go in there and start making declarations of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Um, a culture or a high-performing team needs evidence. Confidence comes from evidence. So the question I ask is, wait, so, let, so give me an example of when you've been successful. And then rather than just take that success for granted, let's do a proper deconstruction, a proper analysis of why success happened. And within that analysis, I guarantee we will find clues that you're going to use to go forward with. So the David Goggins example of going back to success when that's occurred in you and what were the clues behind it is really powerful then because then it gives you the confidence to carry on because it's built on evidence. It's not mm. created in a vacuum. Mm. So again, if I was listening to this in, and thinking about how I could apply this in a corporate setting, I'd be thinking about Who's the best client you've got? What's been the best deal you've ever brokered? What's been the most successful uh, month's billing that you've ever done? And I would go back then and do that analysis and say, well, why was I successful? And what you'll inevitably find within that analysis is there'll be consistent behaviors that were present when success occurred. It might have been that you made time to really listen to your clients' needs and you brought a real empathy to a situation. It might have been that you were really agile in responding to changing circumstances. Whatever it is, they're the clues that you can then take and almost integrate within future deals, future client relationships. Mm -hmm. Great, fantastic. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure I know the answer to this, but, but how important is mindset? And, uh, you know, Carol Dweck and Simon Sinek both talk about the need for a growth mindset or an, uh, an infinite mindset. What, what does that mean? Well, let's answer both questions in turn, in terms of how important is mindset. Again, I'll give you, it's a question that intrigues me, and I'll give you an answer from somebody that people listening to this will uh, will we'll know for her achievements. I asked the same question to Dame Kelly Holmes, and I said, when you were in that 800 metres final in Athens in 2004, how important was mindset, as opposed to just the physical capacity to run fast? And when she answered it, she said, well, if I tell you that the first four finalists 
were all capable of running the 800 meters and there was 0.1 of a second that separated us. She said, we can establish that we all had the capacity to run at roughly the same speed. So the question was, who could run at that speed under the pressure of an Olympic final at stake? So she estimated in her answer that it was 80% of um, her success could be attributed to her mindset. 20% of it was down to her physical capacity. I've yet to meet an elite performer that wouldn't give you a ratio of somewhere between 70% of it mindset, 30% of it down to the physical capacity. Because at a certain level of sport, everybody is as fast and as fit and as strong and as obdurate as each other. And I'd say it's the same in business. Most businesses offer a very similar service when you're in an industry at an elite level. But then it's down to who you engage with, how they listen, how they uh, their responsiveness and all the all the characteristics that have made Gunnar Cook so successful over the last decade is what makes is what we can attribute that to. So I'd say mindset is key. In terms of the question around the growth mindset stuff, this originates from the work of Carol Dweck, as you referenced there. So Carol Dweck's a professor of, uh, of psychology, uh, um, predominantly focused around children. And her work was pioneered originally at Carnegie in New York, where the famous study she did was where she, she did this with over a thousand children. She divided them up into two groups. So one group was told that they were going to have lessons in further mathematics skills. And the other half of the group were taken away and given lessons in how your brain grows when you challenge it and the idea that struggle when you can't quite master something but you persevere and stick at it, makes you smarter. And then the kids were given a series of tests. And what they found is the kids that have been given purely math tests, in other words, they focused on the hard skills, the physical skills of it, they did well when the tests were relatively easy. When they started to get a bit harder, they found the resilience and the perseverance of those kids often fell away quite quickly because they assumed that their math skills didn't stretch that far their math skills were almost finite in its capacity and they fell away. The kids that have been taught that your brain gets smarter the more you struggle, the more you work at it, it's like a muscle that needs to be stretched. Those kids were more resilient, they tended to perform better under pressure and they tended to stick at a task and demonstrate greater perseverance. So who doesn't want to work in a business that does something similar to that? Now there's a nice anecdote, I did a book many years ago about Alex Ferguson and he was a pioneer before he, he was even aware of Carol Dweck's work, where he did uh, exercises famously with the class of 92, the Beckhams, the, the Nevilles, the Nicky Butt, the Paul Scholeses, where he got some local journalists to come in and do what they thought, what the kids thought was media training days. And when they were being interviewed, the kids were asked about their worst game or their worst performance. And the question was, how would you attribute that worst performance? And what they found is that when Ferguson realised he was on something quite special with that group is, they were all accountable. They didn't shy away from their worst performance and look to blame others or suggest it was just a bad day. They could all understand why they'd had a bad day and attribute it to something that was controllable to them and work out how they would avoid ever repeating those mistakes again. So that's very much a growth mindset stuff. Again, if you're listening to this, it's about saying, well, a mistake is only a mistake until you repeat it, which is the heart of the growth mindset. If you make a mistake and then you have the willingness to do an appraisal and work out what did I do wrong, how would I do it better next time, how do I avoid that pitfall again, 
that's a growth mindset in its essence. I think, that, and, I, and I love that, uh, that idea in business because I always remember, I think it was Jack Welsh at GE said, you know, if you stand still, you just watch your competitors pass you by. So you've got no choice. You have to grow. You constantly lot to improve your services, your products, etc. And I do, and I like the concept where Simon Sinek refers to as an infinite mindset because it is actually never ending. It's never going to stop. You've constantly got to be making those uh, improvements along the way. Which brings us to another question, actually, is... is oh. It was, uh, I think it was Sir David Brailsford at British Cycling who introduced this concept or this idea of the aggregation of small gains. Um, though the Japanese have actually been doing it for a long time in business yeah. and they call it Kaizen. Um, can you talk something about that? Yeah, so the idea of continuous improvement is just that idea that if we look at all, that everything we do, how do we... So if, so if we do 100 things 1% better, it's as good as making huge seismic shifts. I think the reason I sometimes can sound a little bit cynical when we talk about the aggregation of marginal gains is because what it implies is you have to have your basics in place already. So, so there's an assumption that once you're good at the basics of your task, then you can move on to the marginal gains. Mm. Whereas what I see in average teams is they look for the shortcut, the silver bullet, and they think the marginal gains is the answer to it. So I think there's a really clear idea that British Cycling had brilliant basics in place. You know, um, we were speaking before about Phil Neville and some of um, an interview I did with him, and he was talking about Eric Cantona and the difference he made at Manchester United, and he said it was just a repetition of simplicity. So he would do drills every day that was practising the simplicity of being able to pass a ball where he needed it to go in the simplest way possible. And he said it was that mastering of the basics that meant that then you could start looking for that aggregation of maybe it might be nutrition, it might be how you hydrate, it might be having uh, yoga lessons and things like that. But they were seen as the small one percenters on top of the fact that you, they were already excellent at doing the basic standards in place. So... When, once you have that in place, that's very much what British Cycling did. So famously, they went and looked at things like uh, on the Tour de France, having the same mattresses in every hotel. So there was a degree of familiarity for their cyclists when they came into it. That was something that was seen as a 1%. It could potentially make that 1% difference. So it's a great idea. The Kaizen stuff, like you say, has been at the heart of the Toyota and other Japanese manufacturers for for decades now this idea of constantly looking to innovate and not getting stuck in one way of doing it but you have to have the basics in place yeah. before you do that that must be right isn't it? it must become part of the culture uh, at some stage but as you're right if you're starting from a very low base you've got to make some very significant changes and some real challenges in how you do that and then you make it part of your culture to, to keep improving yeah i often think a really good metaphor that i use with uh, some people when i talk about the idea of a kaizen of getting them to understand it you say think about when you go abroad on holiday to places where english isn't spoken as a foreign language and i'm sure we've all had the experience of seeing a fellow brit stood at the bar trying to order a drink from a, from, <laughs> from the uh, bemused bar staff yeah. and the question i often ask is how does a typical brit abroad deal with this communication difficulty and the answer is they often shout louder and speak slower <laughs> So then the obvious question is, do they become more comprehensible or just more obnoxious in the process of trying to order? And the answer is, well, of course. They don't make themselves more comprehensible. And in business, that's where I see 
the lack of the basics that when you hear somebody say, oh, we need more money, we need a bigger marketing spend, we need more um, staff, you're often hearing, to me, it's the equivalent of the Brits trying to order a drink by shouting at people. If your basics are not in place, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at a particular challenge. Yeah, absolutely. The basics of not being able to grasp the language and understand the culture will always let you down. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, let's move on to something a, a little bit different. Um, I'm sure that we'll both agree that no one ever in life gets a smooth ride, whether you're striving to achieve something or just life yeah. generally. You're not going to get a smooth ride. And, and some people deal with that better than others. And I suspect really successful people must deal with it even better than anyone. And we tend to call it resilience. That's the, that's the word that we refer to do. How important is resilience and how do high performers show that resilience? Well, it's a brilliant question. I think, again, I'd give a really, um, a really powerful model that if I was explaining this to, uh, uh, to somebody about resilience, I'd refer them back to the work of a guy called Do- uh, Dr. Joseph Campbell. Now, most people haven't heard of this guy, but in the early part of the 20th century, he spent... 30 years travelling to some of the most obscure remote cultures on earth with a really simple question, what unites us? And what he found is that all human beings will engage in a struggle, they'll have difficult moments. And he uh, credited this in five stages of change. Now, if you've never heard of Joseph Campbell, his most famous student is somebody most people will be familiar with, George Lucas. So the whole of the Star Wars Mm -hmm. franchise uses Joseph Campbell's five stages of change. So the first stage is the dream stage, where everyone gets excited about a new idea that we're going to do. Then the leap stage follows it, where we do something different than what we were doing yesterday. Then we get to the fight stage, and this is the messy middle. Ben A. Brown refers to it as a messy middle. It actually is credited as something known as Cantor's Law, and Cantor's Law is named after this lady called Ross Cantor that says, when you're in the middle of any project, it will always look and feel like a failure because you'll be too far in to go back, but you're not far enough to get to the end. And this is where this phrase you use, resilience, starts to diminish. This is where motivation starts to be in short supply. This is where people get disillusioned very quickly. And this is where most teams, organisations and individuals will give up. High performers, like you say, I've got a plan in place to get through that messy middle. And when they do, they will see seeds of progress, which is the fourth stage. And then you get to the arrival bit where you celebrate and then you go back to the start again and replenish. So resilience is about getting through the messy middle and everybody experiences cancer's law. When, like you say, high performers do it. So the question is, how do they do it? And I go back to the earlier question we had around uh, visualization. Those two elements can be huge. So the first thing they have is visualisation of an outcome. We're really clear about what, what, what we want and that provides its own gravitational pull to direct us to make sure we're on the right path. The pre-mortem allows us to anticipate some of the problems that are going to occur in the messy middle bit and know that rather than see it as a sign that we're on the wrong path, it's actually a sign that we are on the right path because we anticipated it and we've got a plan in place to be able to get through it. Uh, and some of that, sorry, just to interrupt on that, Dave, some of that, I guess, is expectation, isn't it? If you know that you're going to meet obstacles, if you've prepared 
that along the way you aren't going to meet obstacles, then you're prepared for it beforehand. If you think everything's going to be smooth and, and it's going to be an easy ride, you're going to get disillusioned. So it's having a mindset again, isn't it, about, yeah, it, it's not going to be easy, there are going to be obstacles, and I'm prepared for those obstacles, it's just part of the journey. 100%, Daryl. I think if you take another example, like in January every year, membership of diet clubs like Weight Watchers and Slimming World in the UK spikes massively and yet the numbers fall away by approximately the same number by by mid-February. So the question is, and this is a stat that isn't well reported, but 98.1% of people that join a diet club will find themselves at the same weight or heavier 12 months later. Now, it was Billy Connolly that once described the diet in four words, eat less, move more. So you go, that couldn't be more (laughs) simple. So it's as common sense as that. So why is common sense not translated into common practice? And the reality is that when most people turn up at a diet club, they've got that idea that this is going to be a smooth journey. They Mm -hmm. picture themselves on a beach looking and feeling fantastic in the summer. And they think that it's a case of just uh, doing what you need to do in terms of following the instructions and the weight drops off. But then what they don't anticipate is what about mid-February when that New Year's resolution is long gone, when you're at work, you're really busy. What about on a Friday night when you're driving past the takeaway where you normally get something to eat and you've had a long week and you're exhausted and your resilience and your and your levels of resistance are low how are we going to handle those moments and because we don't anticipate them when they occur we mm. often find ourselves falling into those pitfalls yeah. uh, those potholes yeah. and then we convince ourselves that oh, what dieting isn't for me you know i'm destined to be fat i'm just big boned we make up all <laughs> kinds of nonsense stories i've used a few of those David. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I guess also part of that, though, is I sometimes wonder if, and I, what you think of this, we sometimes take ourselves too seriously. You know, what was that little book that came out years and years ago? Richard Carlson, was it Don't Sweat the Small Stuff or yeah, something? Yeah. And we do, we make everything a bit intense and everything a bit seriously, which doesn't allow us just to relax and say, look, this is just part of the journey. You know, just take it in. 100%. I think, I, I, I think the, the importance of... of of relaxation, the, ex- the importance of getting away and giving yourself a sense of perspective is key. I often, there's a nice metaphor somebody used with me recently that said the world's fastest sport is motor racing and yet it's defined by who manages to take their pit stops most effectively. And I think there's a metaphor there for life that as life gets increasingly fast, it's who takes the time to rest, to recharge and give themselves a sense of perspective and maybe, like you say, have a sense of humour about what we're doing and be able to treat it lightly are the ones that can get through these difficult times. You've worked with a lot of coaches, a lot of top sportsmen and a lot of coaches as well. And, And coaches are... You know they're completely uh, prevalent in in sports, the sports world. Now everybody has a coach, uh, and it's come a little bit into the business world, but not quite so much yet. I'd be interested to know what is the role of a coach, and, and why do you think it's really important the coach's role in helping the, the, the sportsman or sportswoman? Yeah, I'd say the best definition I've ever heard of it, and I'll misattribute it, so I won't try and do this. I'll just share the definition: is that. A great coach is someone that troubles the comfortable and comforts the troubled. And I think that sums up neatly what the great coaches do. So when they see somebody coasting or just thinking that it's easy, they'll challenge them, they'll stretch them, they'll get them to engage in 
making more out of their attributes. But when people are struggling and feel difficult, they can be a shoulder to cry on. They see the human being behind behind the mask or, 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 or the job title. So that's what I see the best coaches do. They're somebody that can, that can serve both roles. And uh, I think we, that one of the powerful things that they do is they're often a sounding board that when I work with some of these coaches, I feel that my job is often to be a sounding board for them because they're the ones that are expected to have the answers. And I think that my relationship with them that is often built on trust and, um, and, and psychological safety means that they can often come and talk to me about, I don't know what to do here or I'm struggling in this situation. And I think that power of just listening to somebody, of giving somebody a, a safe space to just go and talk about their challenges, they often know the answers themselves. They just need somebody that they can trust to come and share that. And I think that's an underrated virtue uh, from an awful lot of coaches. I remember many years ago, I interviewed um, a guy called Angelo Dundee that was Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard's coach. And he had a great phrase. He said, I do nothing with elegance. And it's almost this idea that I'm there just to correct people and tell them they're doing the right thing because they often are. But he said that where he got paid for was the 5% of occasions where he did need to intervene and make a critical observation that they hadn't seen. And I think that's the idea of a coach. They're not there to tell you what to do. They're often there just to make sure to be another pair of eyes and ears for you, to reassure you that you're on the right path and correct you when you're not. So do you think that can translate into successful business people using coaches? 100%. I think it, I think it has to. I think that in the sort of fast-paced, high-pressure world that you're operating in, that the corporate world demands, I think having somebody that, that keeps you on track in terms of meeting your objectives is no different from a, a sports coach or a, or a performer in the sports world. I think, I think the, the, best, the best business leaders do have coaches. We interviewed recently uh, Baroness Michelle Moan, um, who credits the, the emergence of a coach in her life as seminal in terms of when she was building up the Ultimo Bra business. <clears throat> that she sold in 2015 and the subsequent journey she's been on in a reinvention since. She says that she couldn't have done any of that without a coach. And I think when I've met some of these corporate leaders from the likes of Sir Richard Branson through to the likes of Sir Terry Leahy when he was running Tesco, they all utilise coaches. Good, good, thank you. I've, um, this is a question I've been really wanting to ask you, actually. I've been watching recently The Last Dance on, uh, yeah. Michael, on Netflix, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. I find a fantastic, uh, gripping documentary. But at one point, and I guess a lot of people may not have noticed this, at one point, one of the commentators says that the difference between Jordan and others is that he lived in the moment. Uh, and it made me think um, of, uh, you know, that famous quote that he gives early in his career where he says... Why would I worry about a shot I haven't made yet? Yeah. Um, how important is being in the moment for success? Oh, wow, that's good. Um, I think having a flexible perspective is, uh, is important, and being in the moment is one of those alternatives. So if you think about it, your mind can travel in three directions. It can go in the future, it can go in the past, or it can be in the moment. And they're all useful. So like we say, the success leaves clues answer we spoke about earlier that's about reflecting on the past and letting your brain go there to work out when you've been successful the visualization of how you're going to handle 
pressured moments is your brain going into the future to prepare you. But being in the moment is where you're focused purely on that moment. You're giving somebody 100% of your attention, say in a meeting. What's more flattering than that, than somebody knowing that they're really being seen and heard can be really critical in, a, in say, a client meeting that you might have. You know, um, getting a, say, if you've got a sportsman that's about to perform a kick under pressure, once they've done the visualisation of working out what they're going to do next, you need them to be in the moment to go and execute and focus completely on it. So the answer to the question is, being in the moment is critical as long as you understand there's three places you can go. But at any one stage, you need to be clear as to the purpose of why you're allowing your brain to go in that fast, into that future past, or you need it in the present moment. Because I guess that, you know, if you do look into the future, that fear can be paralysing, can't it? If, you, you know, if you're worried about the things you're going to miss, the goal you're going to miss, etc., it can be paralysing, and so you've got to kind of move away from that. Yeah, so if you find yourself... So your brain, when you're performing under pressure, your brain immediately is... Well, one of its key functions is to keep you alive, so it immediately looks at all the things that could go wrong and all the things that could sabotage you. So that's a very natural propensity of where your brain will take you to under pressure. Now, the visualisation stuff can almost counter it and knock out some of those fears, which is why, as we've discussed, it's important. But then when you need to be in the moment, there's lots of little uh, strategies you can use. There was a golfer a few years ago that used to paint a red spot on his hand. So before he played the shot, he would focus on that red spot that was in his hand, uh, that was on his hand and he would focus on it for at least 10 seconds. So his brain was focused intently on that. So then he could almost get out of his own way and just mechanically do the shot that he wanted to. I remember working years ago with a rugby player that struggled under high kicks when the ball came under pressure. And there's a really nice exercise we got from um, a psychologist in America called Sham Belchok, that was we had him sing a song to himself <laughs> when, the ball was, when the ball was in the air. He had to just sing a nursery rhyme like Yankee Doodle Dandy or something. And that distracted his brain from thinking about what could go wrong wow. and dropping it wow. to literally just focused on the moment. So there's lots of little techniques we can use yeah. to counter it to get your brain in the immediate moment that, uh, that we exist in. Great. Well, I've got one more question, and then actually, and actually this question gives you kind of a bit of a remit to add anything to it that Go you on. might think that we, can, uh, that, that we haven't spoken about that you think could, re could really yeah. help. And, and that is, do you think there's a link in how successful sportsmen and women operate and successful business people? Can we learn, you know, what is it we, that business people in particular can learn from the success of sports people? Yeah, okay. Um, there is a link, definitely, but, I, but can, if I can start with any cynics that might be listening to this, because I appreciate that some people hear sport and go, you know what, I'm tired of having people uh, tell me that sport and business can be linked. And I think that we often... There's two reasons that... that there's two big differences between sport and business that, um, that, that mean that any parallels are redundant. The first one is that some of the conduct and behaviour that takes place in elite in sport environments wouldn't ever for a second be acceptable in a corporate environment, the way people speak to each other. Um, I've seen, for example, that if I wanted to make a point to you, Daryl, and we were playing in the same rugby team, I'll get the opportunity to physically 
make my point that you'd never dream of in a corporate world. Mm -hmm. So bullying like that mm. can happen and is almost accepted as being within the rules of the game, if you like. So that's one difference that, uh, that, that I'd highlight. The second one is that the sporting world allows um, punitive measures to be more immediate. Say, for example, I can drop you from the team or I can let you go at the end of a contract. You've got employment law. That means that mm -hmm. that's not always the same in your world. So for any cynics that are listening, I'd say, I accept that the sport and business parallels are not always as evident as we would assume. But I think where I would argue that the parallels, or there's an awful lot to learn from it, comes in the second bit, that we're not talking about sport. We're talking about people that just happen to work within the industry of sport, just as people listening to this are people that work within the industry of law. So the people element about coping under pressure, about working as a cohesive unit, about delivering messages that people will remember long after you've actually executed them, all those characteristics that you see elite sports coaches do are exactly the same that people listening to this are required to do. And I think there is an awful lot that we can learn from it. Thank you, Damien. Um, well, that was really, really inspiring. I really, really enjoyed that. I, in fact, I've enjoyed it so much, I'll probably listen to the podcast. Um, but I hope everyone's enjoyed it as much as I have. If you want to hear more from Damien, look out for the High Performance Podcast with Damien and Jay Humphreys from wherever you get your podcasts. And also check out the many books that Damien has written. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Morning, good morning, rise and shine.